0: I'll invite you now to stand with me. I'm going to read starting in verse 14 down through the end of the chapter. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures." You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your gathered church. Corporate body of believers here together. I thank you for this family. And Father, we come to you now. We, we pray for Kelly as she has experienced this uh, traumatic injury. We recognize, Father, and we are grateful in our hearts to know that you are not taken by surprise when uh, things like this happen in our lives and the lives of those that we love. But that you, God, are in control. Father, we pray for our dear sister Teresa. We thank you for the many, many things that she does for our church. God, would you strengthen her and encourage her, even allow our congregation to be the physical means through which you do that. Give her uh, a strength by the power of your Holy Spirit in the coming days, God, as we know this will be difficult for her. And we pray, God, that you would heal Kelly. We ask you to do that. We trust that you can through whatever means you choose. Father, we also ask now that you would instruct us in your word So we approach this book of 2 Peter one final time together this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This last section of 2 Peter is one final call to diligent perseverance. My Bible labels this, se- this last section, which you know, by the way, the. The section labels in your Bible aren't actually Bible, right? Peter didn't go through and put section headings. The translators of the English Bibles, the various translators of the English Bible did that kind of for help for us. Mine calls this final words. Imagine if you would, knowing that you're about to say your final words to a group you've loved for a long time. I'm always struck, anytime we walk through an epistle or just in my own personal study, I'm studying through an epistle by how the apostles chose to end their letters. Sometimes they end them just in the most mundane ways possible. Paul is often guilty of this. Paul would just be like, hey, say hey to these people, you know. Bring me some things that I'm missing. At other times, though, there is just profound moments, almost as if, and I think this is one of them, as if it is, is like someone laying on their deathbed, knowing, as Peter has already told us, he knows that death is coming. He knows that he is very likely writing to these beloved Christians for the final time. He will not see them again. History tells us that Peter was imprisoned in Rome as he writes this and would never escape that imprisonment. He Would be killed there, a martyr of the faith. Now, because these are the last words in 2 Peter, it doesn't somehow make them more meaningful or more important than the rest of the book. They are all God's word. But Peter does a really good job here, I believe, in his letter, of summarizing what he has said in the entirety of the letter. That he's giving these, these final words, a final call to diligent perseverance because that has been his theme. He is one final time reminding his readers. Now, you may say, Pastor, we've sat through, now this is number eight, eight sermons on diligent perseverance, looking at it from different angles and how different doctrines that Peter addresses and different circumstances at play in that church affect our perseverance. Do we really need another sermon on perseverance? Yes. (laughs) Because we are so prone, so very prone, grow tired and apathetic and even lazy in our walk. And just as Peter's, the recipients of Peter's second letter need one final call to diligent perseverance, church family, we do as well. The main idea of today's sermon is that through Christ and his word, believers have all they need to persevere to the end. There, there, there's, there's no trick, there, there's no magic words, there, there's no deciphering some kind of hidden message that will give us what we need to persevere to the end. It is simply Christ and his word. And through that, we have all that we need. Let's begin with Christ. Jesus provides our means to persevere in his perfect righteousness. Jesus provides our means to persevere in his perfect righteousness. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, so therefore means because of everything else that I've said, let me draw your attention, Peter says, to this final thought, one final reminder. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace What are these things that we are waiting on? We are waiting on what Peter had described as the day of the Lord in the the previous verses of this chapter. Where the Lord would return, where the Lord would renew and restore all things, including us. That we would be found to be in Him and that we would have his righteousness. So while we wait for perfected righteousness in glory, we rely on our positional righteousness found in Christ right now. That is what we're waiting on. We're waiting on our faith to become sight. We're waiting on the future tense of our salvation. Salvation is something that happened to us. It is something that is happening to us. And it is something that will one day happen to us. And that's what we're waiting on. We're waiting on the the final manifestation of our salvation where we become like Christ and live with him for all eternity in his new heaven and new earth. And while we wait on that, Peter says, be diligent. We have seen this word over and over. It became so important as I was studying this text for the series that we named the entire series after that term. So one final time, a reminder to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now we've already seen this idea of spot or blemish appear in 2 Peter chapter 2 as well as in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let's just kind of work our way backwards because the context here is going to help us understand what Peter's saying. In 2 Peter chapter 2, the main theme is the false teachers. He's directly addressing head on those who are seeking to lead people astray within the church that he's writing to. And he says of them in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, they are blots and blemishes. You notice that? Same words. Now, it's translated in ESV, spots or blemish. Blot and spot are the same. It's, it's the same word. And, and it's hearkening back to the Old Testament where there was a requirement for a sacrifice, uh, for a sacrificial lamb to be won without any kind of spot or blemish, meaning you weren't supposed to take the worst of your herd and sacrifice it. You were supposed to take the best of your herd and sacrifice it. And here is what Peter said, that the false teachers in chapter 2 are those who are, have spots and blemishes. They are unworthy. But Peter now calls Christians to be found by him, Jesus, without spot or blemish, contrasting those who are false teachers with those who are true believers. You say, okay. I certainly don't want to be one of these false teachers. I don't want to be someone with a, with, that would be found unworthy. I want to be found worthy. I want, to be, I want to be exactly what the scripture says here. Someone without spot or blemish. Well, how do I do that? Well, we go to Peter's first letter where he uses the same term. It's going to be helpful to us because he uses it in a little different context. He says, knowing, writing to Christians now, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So in 1 Peter, he does the same thing he does in 2 Peter, is he hearkens back to the Old Testament using this Old Testament idea of a sacrificial lamb that's, that's perfect, that's not, it, it's not the, the worst of the Group, It's the best of the group, and he says that Jesus is that, that that we have been ransomed from who we used to be. He describes that as our feudal ways, not by something of this earth, not by perishable things of silver and gold, meaning not by something of this earth, but with the precious blood of Christ, which is perfect, without blemish or spot. So Jesus then has this righteousness that he lives, this is why we say it's important for us to understand that Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Jesus was holy and perfect, fully without sin, being able to be the spotless lamb of God who dies in our place. You say, okay, What Jesus is that. But how do I get to 2 Peter 3, where I become that? Well, let's go to the Apostle Paul, who Peter's going to mention here in just a moment anyway, in Romans chapter 4. Because Romans chapter 4 helps us to see how the righteousness of Jesus becomes something that we then possess. In Romans chapter 4, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul addresses Abraham, who if there's anybody who has righteousness, right, of their own, it would be Abraham, right? And Paul uh, Paul addresses this in Romans 4. He says, for what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So at the beginning of Romans 4, Paul makes this argument that even Abraham... Right? Father Abraham, this giant of the Old Testament, didn't do works to attain his righteousness, but that his righteousness was counted towards him. Meaning he didn't produce it on his own, but it was credited to him by God. Then we get to the end of Romans 4 and we read this. This is why his faith was, in quotes, counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was, justif- who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right, so let's just make this progression, right? Peter says, I want you to be without spot or blemish. Then he contrasts that with those who are with spot or blemish, the false teachers, we say, okay, well then how can we be this and not that? Well, Paul gives us the answer in Romans 4. We can't earn it on our own. It has to be credited to us. It has to be counted to us. And he says, that's why it was said of Abraham that his, his righteousness wasn't something that he did on his own, but something that was counted to him. That's why he says it was for our sake also, because whoever has believed in Jesus... Has had, G, has had the righteousness of Jesus counted to, towards him. So the Lord credits us, meaning we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, we didn't produce it. It's credited to us, meaning externally, it comes upon us from the Lord. The Lord credits us with the righteousness of Christ at the moment of our justification. So when the Lord looks at us from a legal sense, he doesn't see my sin as a believer in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Christ. I am covered by the blood of Jesus that that Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter one. That's perfect, right? The, The blood as if it's of a spotless lamb without blemish. And if you're in Christ, so are you. Then little by little, the Lord imparts Christ's righteousness To us. So, in one sense, righteousness is imputed to us, meaning it's put in our place in that past tense version of salvation when we think about us, our justification, that we become right with God when we come to faith in Christ. And then, as we live, little by little, we put off sin by the power and inner working of the Holy Spirit and we put on. Christ. We put on his righteousness. So in that sense, righteousness is imparted to us. It's given to us just little pieces at a time. But make no mistake, none of that righteousness, church family, is yours. (laughs) You didn't earn it at the beginning and you're not earning it now. It all belongs to Jesus. So anything about you that is without spot or blemish, whether it is your initial justification or your ongoing sanctification has nothing to do with you or anything you've earned and everything to do with what Jesus has earned in your place. It is all the righteousness of Christ. And look what he says at the end. It's, you know, sometimes we read, particularly at the end of a letter, we'll just skip over something, we'll miss something I think profound. Look at those last two words there in verse 14. Really last three. You'll be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Those who are found in him without spot or blemish, those who have the righteousness of Christ within them, who are daily putting off sin and putting on Jesus are, this is huge, are at peace. And you say, okay, why is that such a big deal? Because it's who we're at peace with. Just, just think about the logical argument that Peter is making. Peter's not saying that, that you, you just feel good. He's not saying that people around you are gonna like you. You know, sometimes we use the word peace and it doesn't carry the same significance that it really should. Who are we at peace with? Those who are without spot or blemish. Those who have the righteousness of Jesus applied to their lives are at peace with holy God. You, my friend, if you're in Christ, are at peace with God. And make no mistake, if you're not found in the righteousness of Christ, you're not at peace with God because there is no other way to have peace with God than through Jesus alone. This book of Second Peter, while it's calling us to diligent perseverance, it is not calling us to a works-based salvation. And unfortunately, Western Christianity has time and again, while we say things like we're saved by grace through faith and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ alone, we we then by our actions and other words begin to prove otherwise. We begin to look at other people as if they're unsavable. We begin to treat other people as if they're unsavable. And we begin to look at ourselves and think, look how great I am. As if somehow we have earned our peace with God. Hear me today. If you are at peace with God, it is because of the righteousness of Jesus. And if you think that by being here or by doing good things, you are somehow earning your peace with God, know this, you are not. (laughs) But you can be. You can be. Simply by believing that Jesus is that perfect, spotless sacrifice in your place, by trusting that His, by the covering of his righteous blood, the Father will, in his righteous judgment, see Jesus and not you. And then he will progressively make you more and more into the image of his Son while you wait for the day of your faith to become sight. If you will believe that today, you can be at peace with God. Oh, what a great promise that we can be found at peace with him. So Jesus is our means of righteousness. Number two, God's word provides our means to diligently persevere in Christ to the end. I wanted to press really hard on that first point because I want to just clarify over and over as I've sought to do through this whole series that Peter's not calling us to diligent perseverance because diligent perseverance somehow saves us. He's calling us to diligent perseverance because that's what saved people do. And so how is it that saved people do that? Saved people do that according to God's word. Peter made this argument at the end of the first chapter, clearly stating that God's word is not the invention of mankind. It's not open to, it's not some kind of myth or even open to one's own interpretation, but that the Holy Spirit spoke as they were carried along, the prophets, the apostles, to write the word of God. And so then we have that now, and it is our means of diligent perseverance. As we await these things, this future hope, what we do is we live according to God's word. Look at verses 15 and 16. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now let me just take the beginning of verse 15 and the end of verse 16 for us to recognize something here because this is, this is pretty important. Peter is definitely, as he did at the end of chapter 1, writing about the word of God. And he talks about Paul. It's always interesting to me when one apostle talks about another apostle. It happens on a few occasions. But particularly these two apostles, because we have recorded both in the book of Acts and in Galatians conflict at times between these two apostles, that there were times that even though Peter was kind of the head of the disciples and that Peter was, you could argue, the closest human being to Jesus on this planet, there, were, there was at least one instance where Paul had to go and directly publicly confront Peter over, and it had to do over whether he was eating with Gentiles or not. But it's clear, right? This has been solved, that, that these two now see one another. Peter, the one who was corrected, is writing about the one who corrected him and calls him my beloved brother, recognizing that he has written to him. So this is a first century letter confirming the existence of other first century letters. Now knowing, or likely knowing, who first and second Peter were written to we can then deduce what Paul's writing about here. Paul, or what Peter's, or who Paul is writing to, that Peter is writing about. Does that make sense? So, because of the area of the of the Christians that Peter wrote First Peter, and then saying he's writing a second letter to those same people, that it's probably Colossians, Ephesians. It's that area of the world. And Peter says, what does he say at the end of verse sixteen? Talking about those who twist them as they, they twist the words of Paul as they do the other scriptures. So this is a disciple of Jesus, a New Testament apostle, saying that the writings of Paul, another apostle, are scripture. Now, every time we see the term scripture in the New Testament, it is talking about the Old Testament. But Peter's making an argument that's important for us here. The New Testament is valid. The New Testament writings are scripture, just as the Old Testament writings are scripture. And Peter then affirms for us that scripture is where we should go for godly wisdom. So he says in verse 15, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Now who gave him that wisdom? The Holy Spirit did. We know this because of what Peter argues in chapter one that the Holy Spirit is the one carrying them along as they write these things. So wisdom is where, oh, so the Scriptures is where we find the wisdom of God. The Scripture is where we can know what God has said. The Scripture is where we can know is where we can go to know the definitive, definite, true unadulterated, will of God. There is no other place you can go for that. It's scripture alone that shows us the true wisdom of God. And yet we go and seek wisdom in so many other places. We go and look for it as if it is something that we must discover hidden under a rock. When the truth is we have it, most of you sitting in your laps right now that God has spoken to us. We sang just before I came up to preach the song Firm Foundation. I grabbed my notes. I made a quick note because one of the first lines that we sang in that is, what more can he say to you than he's already said? Why do we so often want God to say things that God hadn't said? Listen, God has spoken and his word is sufficient. His word is clear. His word is true. We can trust it. So go to it. Next week, we're going to begin a new series because, well, Second Peter's done, and that's what we do. But we're going to do something that we've not ever done before. We're going to, instead of preaching through a whole book of the Bible, we're going to preach through one chapter of the Bible. And that one chapter of the Bible is going to take us three summers. Um, we're going to preach through Psalm 119 starting next week. And Psalm 119 is the longest chapter, by far, the longest chapter in the Bible. And so we're going to spend the next three summers, seven weeks this summer, seven weeks the next summer, and eight weeks the following summer, thinking about our place, our, the word of God's place within our church and the word of God's place within our lives. I just want you to listen to just a couple of lines that the psalmist says late in Psalm 119. This is verses 162, 168 to 100, 166 to 168. He says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your, your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. You say, why would we spend three summers in one chapter? Because we should desire to have the same heart for God's word that the psalmist demonstrates here. Shouldn't that be what we want? That we look at God's word and say, oh God, your word is like, it's as if I found a treasure hidden in the field. I didn't even have to look for it. Here it is. At the beginning of our service, we recognized our graduates. We always give them a gift. This year, I got to pick out the gift because I'm kind of working with our student ministry team. And, uh, so we gave them a book called Just Do Something. I've probably, if I were to add them all up, given out more copies of this book over the years, over my years of ministry than any other book that I give out. I give out a lot of books. I have two shelves in my office that are dedicated just to books that I give out to people that are asking different questions. But this is probably the one that I've given out the most. I love this book. I love this little book. Go, go buy this little book. If you, if you struggle with knowing, you know, if you're, if you're always trying to discern like, what it is God wants you to do, because Kevin DeYoung, who wrote this book, really helps. I want to read a little section of it. He says this writing about God's word. He said, God's word is living and active. When we read the Bible, we hear from God with a confidence we find in no other book and from no other voice. We can read the scripture knowing that this is what the Holy Spirit says. And as we read and reread and ponder and study and digest the scriptures, we will, as 2 Timothy 3.15 says, become wise for salvation. But the Bible is not a case book. It doesn't give us explicit information about our dating or careers or when to build a church or when to buy a house. We've all wished that the Bible was that kind of book, but it's not because God is interested, catch this, in more than getting to us following his to-do list. He wants transformation. God doesn't want us to merely give external obedience to his commands. He wants us to know him so intimately that his thoughts become our thoughts. His ways, our ways. His affections, our affections. God wants us to drink so deeply of the scriptures that our heads and hearts are transformed that we love what he loves and hate what he hates. Oh. Would we develop a passion for god's word because through god's word we receive true wisdom from God, our means of persevering day by day as God has revealed His will to us. consider with me now verses 17 and eighteen you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Scripture, as we have confessed together through song this morning, is where we build a foundation that is unshaken. And in the context of Second Peter, specifically unshaken by false teachers, This is why he says, be careful, take care that you not be carried away by what? The air of lawless people and lose your own stability. So to lose your own stability means you've established a foundation and the false teachers of Peter's day are going to do the same thing that false teachers throughout time and in our day are still doing, trying to push people off of that foundation. It should be no wonder that our faith in Scripture is the primary thing that false teachers attack. It should be no wonder. Like, we shouldn't wonder why they want to call into question the validity of Scripture, why they want to add things to Scripture, why they want to take things away from Scripture, why they want to raise up other things as equal to Scripture. They want to do this because Scripture is the foundation. And it has always been, it has always been the plan of the enemy to attack the very foundation that upon which we have built our lives. And there will always be new ideas that seem to be attractive. And I'm imagining that's why Peter had to write this letter because these false teachers had worked their way into the church and some of the church were finding those false teachings attractive. Because what was their false teaching? Jesus wasn't coming back. And if Jesus isn't coming back, you can live however you want to live in this world. That was the false teaching. And the same is true today. There are always going to be these new ideas that seek to change the way that we think about Scripture and its place in our lives. And in truth, these ideas are simply tools the enemy uses to lead the weak astray. But when we stand on the word of Christ, we are able to resist these temptations because we have a firm foundation that is unmoving. Now, somebody's gonna come in the whole hobby and be like, you're a biblicist. Like you're worshiping the Bible, not Jesus. No, remember where I started in this sermon. Please don't just listen to the second half of this sermon. Our foundation is Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our hope in life and death. He and he alone is what saved us, is saving us, and will continue to save us. But the word of Christ, the word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit to prophets and apostles, handed down from generation to generation, is how we obey Christ. It's how we live for Christ. It's how we align our will to the will of Christ. So no, we're not bowing down today, worshiping the Bible. We bow down to none other than Jesus. But we go to the Bible to know that which Jesus wants us to do. To know that which Jesus wants us to believe. And to know how we can live obediently to Jesus. In Colossians chapter three, the apostle Paul says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed you were called in one body and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is why the church gathers, (laughs) This is why I am so grateful. I know I say it every week that I'm grateful for the gathered corporate body of Jesus in this place. Here's why I'm so grateful for it. Because we're doing what Colossians 3 tells us to do, that we're speaking the word to one another, that we're instructing the word towards one another. The word of Christ, we're together pointing one another to Jesus, helping one another diligently persevere. So what? Am I relying on Christ alone for saving righteousness and on his word for persevering in righteousness to the end? Really, this is two parts. Am I relying on Jesus alone? Because outside of Jesus, there is no salvation. Outside of faith in Jesus alone for the remission of your sin, there is no hope for righteousness in this life. There is no hope for peace with God now or forever. It is with Jesus alone. But those who have found hope in Jesus and have his righteousness, we then turn to his word that shows us how to day by day, sometimes, folks, second by second, persevere until Jesus returns. As we await for these things, we persevere. I want to show two places. Since Peter referenced Paul, I want to reference Paul here to end a couple of places where Paul helps us see this, maybe, because it's the book of Ephesians, maybe in one of the letters that Peter was referencing when he talks about the letters of Paul. Ephesians chapter two, starting verse 19, where we read, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you're in Christ today, you are part of something because Christ has done something for you. You are a part of the body of Christ because the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. You cannot rely on your own ability to build the temple. You will always fail, but if you look to Jesus alone as, your, as the cornerstone of your foundation, it's the way that Paul writes about it. Jesus is the cornerstone. Without the cornerstone, the rest of the foundation falls, but with the cornerstone, the rest of the foundation stands firm. Are you relying on Jesus alone? But then he continues to build on this building metaphor Two chapters later in Ephesians 4, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro from the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How do we do this? How do we keep? So he's talking about the foundation in chapter two. Then he talks about this ongoing process of building up the body. Previously in Ephesians four, he's talked about the, the role of pastors and others within the local church and how the local church then builds itself. The body of Christ builds itself up together. And how do we do that? How do we make sure that it's not just Being carried away like children, being tossed by the waves and every wind of doctrine, and the cunning of man and the craftiness of of the enemy. How do we do that? By speaking the truth in love. What is the truth? The truth is God's word. This is how we do it. And we do it together, that we build each other up together. This is why the local church is so important in the lives of Christians. It's why we need each other. And not just need each other as in like, it's better if I have you than not. No, as in like, I need you like I need my next breath of air. We need each other. If we're going to grow into that which God has designed for us to grow into, if we're going to build one another up as the scripture says to do it, then we have to do it together. All of this three chapters eight sermons on diligent perseverance know this the best and easiest place to persevere is in the context of the local church why because there's 250 people in here that are persevering with you you're not alone you're contributing to someone else and they're contributing. That's why we say our mission of our church is to make disciples that make disciples and it's something that everybody here does, contributing. I don't, I'm not the only disciple maker. Our elders aren't the only. We are making disciples together. We are persevering together and we do that by speaking God's word, the truth of God in love as we build one another up. So, We rely on Christ for our salvation. We look to his word for how we persevere together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus, who did not deserve death, chose death in our place so that we might be the righteousness of Christ. I pray, God, that if there's any person here who is believing on their own ability to be at peace with God, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin, their wrong belief, and they would turn to you in faith and repentance today. Thank you, God, for a church that is persevering in your word. Help us to continue to do so. Even if the, the tides in our world continue to shift away from the word of God, And it becomes more and more difficult for us to stand on your firm foundation. I thank you, God, for a place that will continue to do it. And I pray, God, that we would do so all the more. In Jesus' name, amen.